Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm here with Audrey Waters, and we are looking at the week in her Hack Education posts. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Audrey, and to everyone. Although it didn't start as a happy new year for you. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> let's so let's go out of time sequence because uh, you're certainly your most your last post before the um, the the roundup, which isn't actually published yet, uh, was not a happy post. No, it it wasn't a happy post. In fact, I've sort of spent this week feeling rather glum about about 2012, which is funny having, you know, having written all of these trends posts, thinking through 2011 and the obligatory posts predicting what will happen in 2012, sort of out of the gate, four events happened that made me just sort of shake my head and sigh and realize that, you know, we have, we, you know, we have so many struggles ahead of us, I think, to actually get, to get things right, to get things on a, a, a positive path forward. Well, so let's look maybe a little bit specifically. Um, okay, there, there were four things that kind of bothered you, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so let's start with, um, was it Course Kit? Did you start with Course Kit? I can't remember. Uh, I started with co Code Year, but oh, we, code can, year. We, can start with, we can start with either. <laughs> no, no. Start, start. Take them in order. So, Code Year and Code Academy. Yes. Right. So, Code Year. This was um, Code Academy that I've, I have blogged about before in a infamous blog post now, full of full of expletives. Um, and Code Code Year is Code Academy's sort of really quite brilliant marketing campaign, asking people to sign up for an email notification, a weekly email. Um, uh, and it's part of a New Year's resolution, 2012 New Year's resolution to learn to code. Um, and I've had, like as I said, I you know I have some I have some pretty serious questions about Codecademy, about um, sort of how they're actually teaching, or whether or not people will be able to learn to code through the system. And as such, I felt you know the the response with you know so far I think. 200,000 people have signed up for to get this weekly email from them and it's just it's just talked about as though somehow that number we're confusing that number of signups for an for actual sort of learning outcomes so what bothered you there was maybe uh, the misinterpretation or even misrepresentation yeah. But also the the just sort of the core belief about how you would teach coding. Right. I mean, I think that, that that's part of the that's part of the concern I have here. Right. I I don't. You know, this is a company that says you know this is the fastest way, the best way to learn how to code online. It's free, um, and I I'm pretty skeptical of of that. Having you know sort of gone through all of their lessons myself and really feeling um, as though I I wasn't I wasn't really learning um, anything. Um, and then sort of the way in which, I mean, it's again, it's something that we talk about a lot. It's the way in which sort of new education technologies are, are, are talked about without really thinking about what matters. And what matters isn't really page views or signups or users. What matters is learning. And I feel like we're, we're forgetting. We forget about that far too often. So there have always been differences in people's beliefs about learning. But as we sort of increasingly move toward this model of independent financial ventures, you know, is the danger that we're going to see sort of like the infomercial approach, which is trying to convince people of something as a cure-all when in fact learning is much deeper for the most part? Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I think that, uh, well, I, I mean, partially I think we're not even actually talking about, we, f we forget to even talk about learning. I mean, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I would certainly say one of my 2012 um, resolutions is to to actually spend spend more time learning how to code. But uh, and I think it's a. I mean, I think that it's it's a it's a great thing that people are deciding to do. I just I just can't believe that we would honestly think that getting a week a weekly email from from a company is is that path. Interesting. 
Okay, uh, Course Kit and um, Khan Academy were both, to me, kind of about a concern about financial power. Right, right. And we've, we've talked about Course Kit before. Um, Course Kit is a new learning management system that it launched, um, it launched to the public only a few months ago. Um, and it, this was a company founded by three uh, former uh, University of Pennsylvania students who sort of dropped, actually dropped out of college in order to pursue their startup. And they, they're, it's you know, that's the learning management system continues to, you know, this this industry continues to receive a lot of funding from investors. And this company raised six million dollars. They just announced that they've raised six million dollars. Um, and again, I have, you know. I mean, congratulations to them. That's, you know, I, I mean, I feel here I am raining on, you know, both Codecademy and Course Kits sort of parade, which is both of these things are great news for these, for these new companies. But uh, Course Kit has no business plan, right? So right now they're giving away, they're giving away their tool for free to professors and they don't know how they're going to make money. And my, I mean, I, I have a, have a lot of concerns, and there are a lot of education companies that fall into this category. Um, that what Douglas Douglas Rushkoff says, right? If you aren't paying for the product, chances are you are the product. And by that I mean, you know, your data, your interactions, um, maybe sold, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, against your knowledge, with your knowledge, with your sort of implied. You know, term of terms of um, service consent, and I just I'm just quite hesitant about um, about these sorts of about these sorts of uh, new companies. So it's a lot of money. It's a lot uh, of money. No real business model. You know, it seems to me that there's one of two possible outcomes. One is it just ends poorly, right? I mean, you can't can't actually create revenue. The other would be that. Like you said, somebody gets sold, so either the customers, the people who think they're customers become the product, or the company has to create a financial model for its investors, in which case it's less likely to be authentically about learning. So just is it just sort of a bad feeling when you see that much money for something that's that intangible? Right, and I, you know, and as, I mean, I think that, you know, I, I think that, Course Kit, you know, Course Kit might be on the path of something new. I mean, I think that they are sort of they're one of these startups that are definitely rethinking what the learning management system even needs to look like. Um, do we actually need these large um, institutional wide um, tools that are very much about a you know a closed system, walling off students' interactions um, from the rest of the web? And so I think that Course Kit is, has some great ideas there. But like I said, I mean, I, I just think we, um, when, it, when I see that much money being invested in a company without any revenue, it just gives me pause. Yeah, so a little bit of a warning signal maybe. Um, and, and, you've, and, and although a very different business model or financial model, you felt the same way about Vi Hart being um, brought on to Khan Academy. Yeah, this one was, this, this one... Um, I must say this one really this one really upset me. I partially because I think you know I've I have a lot of concerns again about I mean it's this question of pedagogy right how you know how teaching happens how teaching and learning happens is something that we need to think about and I think Khan Academy receives a lot a lot of praise um, when in some ways we we really are seeing in that case just short five minute lectures um, being um, made it turned into video. Uh, this is really just sort of a narrated, a narrated textbook explanation. And for a long time, I thought Vi Hart was an interesting alternative to Khan Academy. She she describes herself as a math musician. Um, she's an artist and a math and a mathematician. And her videos are animations that she sort of she works through um, very complicated mathematical concepts and she she sort of doodles her way through them as she narrates um, sort of um, sort of explanations and artistic ways and it's to me it always seemed like the best like what you you can see the sort of the joy of math it's a very creative um, and not at all um, lecture based video 
Um, and so I've often thought of her as sort of the anti-Khan Academy. So to hear that she joined Khan Academy, I think, was, was um, again, you know, congratulations to Vi Hart. Now she doesn't have to, you know, she has, she has a patron, right? She doesn't have to um, go out and worry about speaking tours and, um, adver you know, advertising revenue on her videos. Um, she can, she's, she's free to do what she wants, she says, at Khan Academy. But again, I wonder how it fits into sort of Khan Academy's larger, um, sort of the larger political questions and the sort of this larger platform, I think, that, that Sal Khan is working on building that is very much about adaptive learning, um, exercises, drills, um, and not at all about sort of the love of math. Interesting. Okay, and finally, uh, Apple as a disruptive force for textbooks. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, and that's going to be obviously a very open project, wouldn't you imagine? Right, right, because you know, I, I, uh, the textbook, the tech, textbook publishers of the world right now are are absolutely in support of open source and the open web and open <laughs> education resources, and they're not at all interested in closing down, you know, shutting down the internet or yeah, yeah. So the, this is all, you know, this is rumor and speculation, but. Um, Apple has a big media event planned this month, and according to the, to the, um, you know, according to some of uh, sort of inside sources say that they'll be making a major announcement about uh, textbooks, uh, which, if you read the Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs, was purportedly the last project that Jobs was working on, um, and his vision was to sort of sort of disrupt the textbook industry, which, uh, which he saw as very bureaucratic. And, um, and, and I just am not sure, I'm not sure that Apple plus the textbook publishers is actually disruptive in the way in which I would like to see, um, you know, I would like to see educational uh, resources be disruptive. But that's just me, you know. Well, and this is complicated too, right? Because we've talked about the sort of cognitive barriers to, to being fully open and how, you know, a lot of what we see as open activity has to be within the context of um, uh, sort of personal motivation, mm -hmm. which is not always generous, but, you know, it can have a generous result. So, you know, we have this sort of unique relationship with Apple in which many people love their products, they love the customer experience, and yet it's not really an open platform. Right. I mean, and I think that, you know, I, I'm just not sure that, you know, it, or at least in, the, in the Isaacson, you know, in the Isaacson biography, there, there are actually very few details about what, what Jobs was thinking about. But one of the things he said is that he had sort of thought about um, hiring, hiring writers, um, having them create the textbooks, and then give the textbook content away for free so when you buy an iPad, for example, you get your textbooks for free. Um, and I just don't, I think that, I mean, I think that, you know, that the way in which the textbook industry works is, I mean, the way in which sort of the, the, the knowledge that appears in textbook works too, I just think it's a lot more complicated than that. And that is, you know, and that is actually not the way in which, you know, Apple disrupted the music industry. Apple didn't hire, you know, uh, hire musicians to to you know to make music that you get for free when you buy an iPod. So I'm I I just am sort of deeply deeply skeptical that this is actually going to be, um, or or why why it might be disruptive of the way in which sort of we buy textbooks now. I, I'm not sure that it's actually going to be moving things forward. And considering the you know considering some of the great strides we've seen in open education resources. I just don't think we would ever find Apple to be the defender of, you know, Creative Commons open, openly licensed, DRM-free, shareable, remixable content. Interesting. Okay. In the Belly Laugh of the Week Award, <laughs> my Belly Laugh of the Week Award goes to your I Made a Math App video. <laughs> yes. I, I can't post it on my own blog because I'm too family-friendly, but... <laughs> There is a line in there about Dan Meyer that had me on the floor. <laughs> okay, so Extra Normal, we've, many of us have watched these really clever videos. Um, you've created one that I really like. Uh, but I don't get this pricing model. I just cannot imagine it working. No, I mean, and that's, you know, that's actually, that's, that's the, the, 
this is one of the things that I that I find now. It's particularly, you know, as a technology journalist, I get a lot of, you know, a lot of people pitch me their stories or their products, and I have to have, you know, there has to be an interesting story, and I for me to write about it, and it actually has to be something that is, I believe, sort of useful in the classroom. And I think, you know, when when Extra Normal first came out, I think there was a lot of excitement. Is it? It is an incredibly easy tool to use. And as you build your animated video, it really works you thinking through, you know, thinking through the script writing process, thinking through camera placement and character and pauses. And I think it would be a great tool to use in the classroom. That being said, they instituted a pricing model that just, I can't, I can't imagine it would work for anyone. I mean, it's, it's too expensive. It's and not just that it's too expensive. Again, it's this selling directly to teachers. Right. And what teachers have this sort of discretionary budget to purchase something, even if it were cheaper. Right. Well, I mean, in, it, certainly if this was something that you were going to, you know, pay out of pocket, too, I just don't know that, you know, because it's a subscription model thing. I mean, I just can't, I mean, extra normal is great, but it is also quite gimmicky. And you might, you know, you might have your students make one animated video, but it's certainly not something that you'd want to, to use sort of, week in and week out, or month in and month out. That's a good point. But my video is pretty funny, and Dan yes, Meyer and does get a great shout out. <laughs> 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 Who I should it's add, really when worth I watching. Up, when I wrote up my Via Heart Khan Academy story, I did want to say that, you know, Via Heart is actually my second favorite uh, math video maker, because I think we all know that Dan Meyer does make the best math videos. And as far as I know, Dan Meyer's not for sale. So. How funny. Um, well, so it, it also occurred to me that where we've seen, there are some really good models here. Uh, Wikispaces is a really good model. Ning, for a long time, was a really good model, where if you provide the service for free to educators, it fills a need for them. They use it, and they really evangelize the platform. Right. I mean, think of all the, the dozens to hundreds of students potentially who become aware of a, of a product because of a teacher's good use of it. So I'm surprised when they, when they, they you know, they wouldn't take that into account thinking that, you know, here mass numbers and mass adoption would be better than trying to get, make money from the teachers. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense at all for me. But then again, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to sort of some of these, I mean, as the, you know, I think... I think that we're really struggling to see sort of what kind of business models do work in schools. I mean, even uh, and uh, you know, even my hesitation about course kit, you know, course kit being free. I think, you know, I mean, I think that we're we have to really think about what's um, what is going to work um, in getting your tool into the hands of uh, st students and teachers. And then, as you know, as an entrepreneur, how are you going to how are you going to sort of put food on your table? You know, I'm going to give a shout out to Wikispaces because I've known Adam Fry for years now. And, you know, Adam has resisted the temptation to kind of go for the for the Grand Slam home run. Yes. They just sort of consistently have provided a product of quality, made it free for teachers, and then built kind of a loyal, authentic following and, and been able to make uh, enterprise sales. And that's that willingness to not jump on the VC big money bandwagon. Yep. You know, in many ways, serves as a really good model of how you would build something that makes a difference in education and pays for itself. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, I would have to say that um, that Wikispaces and Adam is is I think definitely one of the you know one of the one of the companies in education that yeah I think is sort of is is good all around, and there are actually sadly quite few of those. Okay, so you made a move. You put your money where your mouth is, and you moved from GoDaddy. I did, and it was. Um, it, I moved to uh, Hover, which is a Canadian. So, um, yeah, I moved off of GoDaddy. I uh, moved to another thing, and it actually took almost five days, I think, for them for GoDaddy to finally release um, sort of release my information to to move me elsewhere. But yes, I'm done with GoDaddy. Interesting. Okay, that's because of SOPA. It is because well. I mean, actually, this is sort of embarrassing because I should have left GoDaddy a long time ago. The company is, you know, the company has terrible advertising that is ridiculously sexist. Their, you know, their former CEO likes to kill elephants, um, and and but Sopa was indeed the final straw. 
Okay, so you were so sick of top ten lists that you made several lists this week. <laughs> and not only that, they had a variety of numbers to them. A, a top eleven list. A, uh, you did have a ten list, then you had a five list. We're, we're probably going to get to all of them here. Um, but what did you learn about what was most popular on your blog? Well, this this is you know this is one of the fascinating things I think about about the internet is that. Um, you know, I think if, you know, and so, several people sort of made, you know, had these realizations about the sort of the most popular stories of the year. And if you were to look based on, you know, what is the most popular, um, the most popular person or the most popular story, we are actually a, we're actually a society that really only cares about, you know, Beyonce announcing that she's pregnant and Justin Bieber. Um, and so the, the, I mean, and I think that that was sort of one of the big lessons for me was that, 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 that not the most important things that happened in education technology weren't necessarily the most important stories on my site. Although, certainly anything I write about Khan Academy seems to be wildly popular. Right. And you make a distinction between uh, nuanced looks at topics and hyperbolic praise. Right. Right. And I think that, you know, I mean, I think that hopefully, you know, hopefully as, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully one of the people, one of the voices that is sort of looking critically at, at Khan Academy and not, you know, and not just with the headlines that, that this man single-handedly will sort of save, save us from inferior uh, math teachers. I love the irony of the University of Phoenix login <laughs> yeah. uh, direct traffic, right? This is great. I mean, this is this is sort of my the, my homage to my former employer, Read by Web, because one of their long most you know, one of the one of the stories that drove the most traffic to that to that publication is um, a story about um, that was titled "Facebook Wants to Be Your One True Login," and it was a story about Facebook launching the Facebook Connect button. But when people would Google Facebook login, like people looking for www.facebook.com would Google Facebook login and they would actually find that read, write web story. And the comment, there were thousands of comments there from people saying this, wow, this latest UI for Facebook is awful. I quit, I quit, you know, where's the login button? I quit Facebook. This is ridiculous. And I had the same experience this year with, a story it was really just sort of a throwaway story about, well, not a throwaway story, but it was just a very fast story about sort of the, the decline in enrollment in in University of Phoenix after some of the some of the legislation um, changing how they could recruit people. And for some reason, my blog is on the first page of University of Phoenix login. Um, so I get a lot of people looking looking to how they can log into their uh, University of Phoenix accounts. So if somebody really wanted to do some damage, they could take advantage of this, right? Uh, set up uh, uh, fake login pages for services. Well, I, th I think that you, you could. I mean, you could definitely do that. Or as I think, uh, you know, the presidential candidate, candidate Rick Santorum <laughs> has discovered, there are many ways in which the you know Google's page rank and the cert, you know and SEO can be used to get all sorts of things onto the front page. Um, of a Google search that aren't necessarily what you want to be looking for. Right. I remember reading at one point the large numbers of people who used the search bar in Google in place of their URL box. Right. And so if people search for University of Phoenix login, thinking they're going to the login page, mm -hmm. they hit a story with you, from you about the declining enrollment. <laughs> hmm. Are you sure that wasn't uh, purposeful? <laughs> I'm quite sure. <laughs> Okay, so a Mathalicious was an interesting story because, again, it's a story about teachers uh, paying for mm -hmm. a service, but with a little bit of a different twist here. Yeah, and uh, again, I should I should probably say now that um, that uh, uh, that Mathalicious makes really wonderful math uh, education content, math education videos as well. So, um, but but they've done a really interesting thing, which is to rethink their business plan. What the company does is it actually creates lessons for teachers, and these are all sort of Common Core aligned lessons to help them um, to help them sort of um, 
help them teach math concepts. And it actually very much is sort of in the Dan Meyer mold of things, right? So these are real world, real world math applications, sorts of math that you would use in your everyday life. And I don't just mean sort of how to, how to make a cake out of different sort of half cup measurements, but sort of things, you know, interesting questions about what happens on the wheel of, you know, the, the probability of, of a wheel of fortune spin um, and things like that. And so they, they sell these lessons to teachers. It's a subscription model. Um, and teachers really love, teachers really love the content and the students really love those lessons as well. Um, but they were finding, you know, they were finding teachers said they just, teachers just couldn't afford it. And so they revised their business model as a pay what you can. Um, you know, this idea that rather than say, sorry, we're, we're sorry you can't afford it, um, that they've created some different pricing tiers. And these tiers don't have different access. It's not as though you get less when you pay less. I think it's just a recognition that um, not everyone can afford, not everyone can afford the subscription. So that's, you know, there have been some pay, pay what you want experiments. I'm trying to remember the restaurant chain that did that. Panera. Oh, Panera Bread. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, but for me, it was uh, kind of intriguing because, again, it seems like this is part of the larger dilemma. Uh, you know, pay, as you, pay what you can or pricing for teachers, but there's still this ecosystem for selling to education that really makes it hard for the small guy, Right. Uh, so you mean makes it hard, hard for the entrepreneur to sell? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that this is the dilemma. I think that, you know, I think that selling, you know, selling to schools, selling directly to school districts is incredibly challenging. And I think most people really want to bypass that. Um, and so if you do want, if you want to sort of go the grassroots route, if you want to sort of go directly and sell directly to teachers, then you are faced with this, we are faced with the dilemma of the limited pocketbook uh, you know the limited pocketbook, and although you know teachers, you know it's it's this awful statistic that teachers spend a ton of money out of their own pockets every year. Um, it's it's still you know it's it's still hard, sort of hard to hard to get that hard to get that right. So if we sort of stick with the math and money topic, right? Um, we can go out of order again here and and Slater and this math homework answers project. This is fascinating to me. This, this startup is really interesting to me. Um, this, you know, homework, homework help websites are sort of, um, you know, it's, it's not just that they're sort of seen as cheating, but a lot of them are actually, I mean, the, the quality of the, the quality of the responses aren't that great. Um, they're all, they're just sort of one of, it's one of that sort of disreputable parts of the educational web, right? Um, but Slater actually has built a really interesting, a really interesting product that they've um, they've actually found the 100 most used math high school math textbooks, and they have all the answers, not just and not just sort of like you know those books have the answers to like the odd the odd number answers in the back, but they have all the answers to all the questions and the actual mathematical proofs. So they and that's they've done that by hand. Um, they've, they've built out this website. But what they're doing is that it's through, they're now sort of adding in this microtransaction level where they're encouraging students to submit their own mathematical proofs, their own answers to their homework. And they're rewarding them with points, which, which eventually the students can actually sort of cash out and make, make money by posting their homework answers. And then they sort of pay with points to get access to, um, get access to the answers as well. That really struck me the wrong way. Did it? Oh yeah. I mean, anything with points and money and education, uh, you know, I'd like to be proven wrong that there's some good model there. But you know, we've seen that with some of these teacher websites. Mm-hmm. You know, creating lesson plans and getting paid and back and forth. And I don't know. It just felt to me like um, uh, if you read any Alfie Cohn, you know, all of a sudden, are you really just creating all kinds of the wrong incentives around? you know, learning. Well, I mean, I think that the, we, then we should probably back this up even farther, right? Because this is actually a homework assignment. And I'm not right. sure, right? I mean, I think that we could, we could sort of ask the, those, some of those difficult questions right there from the start. Like how much of homework really is this po- <laughs> is a positive learning experience? On the Alfie Cohn scale, this story rates like a <laughs> negative 30. Right? It's about homework and then it's about rewards and points. Right. Well, I mean, and I think that you know, I think that that's, I think that there there are some there are some 
troubling aspects to that for sure. But I think that, you know, the fact of the matter is that students are assigned homework and when they get stuck with homework, they turn, they turn to each other for help. Um, they've always done that. Um, and they turn to the web for help. And so I think Slater wants to sort of help connect students and, you know, students who are peers at, with each other um, in this online place where, uh, where they could sort of get answers from each other, share answers from each other, and are incentivized to do do so uh, financially. So. Again, I don't I don't <laughs> wish anybody any ill will, but that one really felt bad to me. Yeah. Okay, so um, let's let's jump into your three prediction posts. Okay. Uh, one from your own blog, one from MindShift, and one from Inside Higher Ed. Um, you have generic predictions, <laughs> and they are pretty generic. They are generic. <laughs> Yeah. And then you have some specific ones. So uh, why don't we start with the specific ones? Google canceling the Chromebook. <laughs> yeah, I see this coming. Um, although someone reminded me that Google usually tends to ignore things for a year and then cancels them. So maybe I should say Chromebooks will be canceled in 2013. I'm a huge Google fan. I've always been a huge netbook fan. I'm a huge Chrome fan. I have not bought a Chromebook, and I'm going to guess I'm not alone. Yeah, I like. I have a Chromebook. Um, I like it, but again, I just, I just don't see. I just don't see. Unfortunately, Google putting a lot of energy into the Chrome operating system, um, which is funny considering this is, you know, the company that we most, perhaps, most closely associate with the web. They, they've sort of forgotten about their web-based operating system in order to really push the mobile um, operating system. And you know the Android operating system. So I just, I just, I just don't see the Chromebook lasting, and the, and the partnership with with Samsung as the hardware maker. Um, I think you know there are probably other things too around this. That to me, the Chromebook program is is probably in jeopardy. I'm going to pull some threads together here that seem pretty disparate, but they work in my own brain. So um, I am a big Android fan. And my wife lost her phone, which meant that I could pass along to her my Android phone and get a new one. Mm -hmm. And I got the new Google Nexus phone. And the, the experience is very good. And it's quite similar to my Android tablet experience. And so you make this prediction that iPads aren't – there's going to be some studies showing that iPads don't provide benefit to learning. <laughs> Is that because you actually believe that they don't provide benefit or you think somebody's going to come up with a study to say they don't provide benefit? Um, actually, I, I think that somebody will probably come up with a study to define that they don't provide benefit. But I think that it's actually, I mean, what I meant by this was this was really more, um, this was really, really more about sort of the uncritical praise that we have for the iPad as being the device that will quote revolutionize education. And I'm just I'm I mean I'm I'm always skeptical when we sort of when we talk about things that way. But I I'm uh, I just don't know that the that the iPad itself is um is is really necessarily going to make a difference in terms of learning. I think that's a really interesting point, and I think it's a, it, this is one we're going to spend a lot of time on in the future, I'm quite sure. Um, I, I, I do notice that there's an enthusiasm around learning when the, you can actually use the tools that you're using in regular life that are exciting in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, you know, I wonder what connections will be made there. But I will also say that the, this phone and my tablet have really become very significant learning tools for me. And I'm, you know, I'm wondering how you'll feel about that prediction in here because I, I find that as a, as an individual, these are really incredible learning devices for me. But it, I mean, I, but I'm just not sure that that's something that it, I mean, I think that that's something about um, that we could probably ex, we could extrapolate. I mean, you're you're actually using sort of the Android tablet as the so, right. and is it is it the tablet or is it having a mobile device so that it is sort of anywhere learning or like what would make learning on um, an Android phone, for example, different than an experience on an iPad based on operating system, yeah. based on size? I, I would even want to be a little bit more generic, which is the device that can carry all of this literature and material and audio 
allows me to pick and choose when and where I, uh, you know, to, to really shift my learning to fit mm-hmm. my style. And so maybe, uh, it, it, you know, it may be that we qualify this and say that the iPads don't provide benefit to formal learning. Right. But I would certainly say for my own personal learning or informal learning, a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm probably going to be wrong on a lot of these. Well, so. no. <laughs> I didn't mean that to sound like such a stark contrast. I will say though that, that I had I had something happen this week that maybe uh, again I'm pulling together some disparate threads that maybe has an impact on sort of how we view content and our access to content. So I've uh, been a big fan of Google Music for the at the last month and taking all of our downloaded bought music and putting it into the cloud, and I just was unaware of Rhapsody. Mm-hmm. And Rhapsody is a monthly subscription service that lets you listen to basically anything you want. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good model for content for me. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that that's the, a lot of these subscription services, I mean, and we could think even like Netflix, for example, right, where no longer are we necessarily interested in owning DVDs. Okay, maybe Netflix isn't a great example, because you can certainly not watch anything you want with Netflix. But, you know, this idea of having a subscription that um, opens up access to unlimited content, I think is, is a very different model than the ownership, right? Which is I must, I must own these books on my shelf or these record albums on my shelf or these DVDs on my shelf. Um, so I, I, I think so. I, I think that we'll see, I definitely think we will see a move, particularly as things become uh, digital to a, a, a more of a subscription-based and then an ownership-based future. It'll be interesting to watch that with regard to Apple's announcement. Um, okay, so how do you see Arnie Duncan stepping down and Karen Cater taking his place? Was that tongue-in-cheek, or no, do you I, really think that's going to happen? Um, I'm not sure about Karen Cater, but I, I, I would, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all that Arnie Duncan, um, Arnie Duncan needs to go away if Barack Obama wants to win the teacher vote in 2012. I get it now. Right, because the if you know, if, I think for people who might otherwise be willing to cast a vote, um, a re-election, you know, a vote to re-elect Barack Obama, I think you know if you look at his track record, uh, the, his education track record is abhorrent, um, and so and I think Arne Duncan is uh, is pretty symbolic of of that. So I am going to use all of my self-control here to not mention other members of his cabinet that would need to go away. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Half education is a tech education. That's right. Okay, so let's shift to, let's shift to mind shift, uh, where you have 12 trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, mobile, bring your own devices, natural user interfaces, web apps. Yeah. Again, knowing we have limited time here, and, and you can talk about any of those that you want, but Mark Sermon from Mozilla kind of educated me this week a little bit about seeing the phone as a thin client or a thick client. Uh-huh. I hadn't thought of that. So to what degree does it make sense to move away from the downloaded app to uh, apps that run off the web and have their processing power behind the web? I've, I mean, I think that this is going to be a very, I think the move to HTML5 in particular, which has a number has a number of new features to it. So this is the latest version of HTML. That has a, uh, HTML5 has a number of really important new uh, features to the technology that I think make it incredibly powerful, right? It's, it's the promise, for example, to be able to replace Flash in terms of um, in terms of video um, and, uh, and audio. It also works offline, uh, which is really important when you think about um, internet access and connectivity. Um, but I think that the web, the web works across devices, right? As long as you have internet access and are using a modern browser, <laughs> I should add that little asterisk, and are using a modern browser, you can access a, an application that is, that is built with HTML5 which I think is incredibly important, particularly since not everybody, not everyone is using, you know, not everyone has a Windows desktop PC any longer. Not everyone has an Android phone, not everyone has, and certainly not everyone has an iPad. Well, and it also answers this issue of the, um, the control of um, the Android marketplace or the iPhone marketplace and the um, sort of the amazing degree to which we've uh, we've allowed them to kind of control what we have access to. 
Right. I mean, and, and I think that it's in, you know, um, what I, could, I should add here too, like you could still build an app in HTML5 and submit it to those, um, to those marketplaces and have it download and appear and act as though it's a native app. Um, but the thing with when it's built in HTML5 is that it really works across devices. It renders across devices. And that is really, it's really important for equity in education, I think. Well, and it also means that you, you could access it you, through the web and it doesn't have to go through the, uh, somebody else's selection process. Right, exactly. Fascinating. Okay, so there's so much here. I'm just going to name, call some of this out so people will think about going to the post and actually reading them. But grappling with big data, adaptive learning, privacy and security, um, open openness, open software, open content. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm not, I've really seen a decline in interest in open source software in the last year. So my guess is, I'm, I, as, from my perspective in K-12, I don't think we're going to see a lot of that. But certainly open content is huge. Yeah, I think that Do one you want to argue with me? No. Well, the one thing I would say in terms of open source and is that I think that there are a lot of things. Um, for a long time, I think we saw open source was associated. And this is actually a conversation I had with Mark Sermon today. <laughs> we, uh, you know, we, we open source for a long time was associated more with these enterprise technologies, right? So it was this very, um, it was a matter of whether or not sort of IT uh, was going to, you know, was going to choose open source or choose proprietary software. But I think there's actually so much that goes on under the hood of today's, um, today's technology that really, I mean, the web itself, right? The web itself relies on open source. The LAMP stack is an open source set of tools. And I think um, open source is, I think as open source is strong, is stronger than ever. I just think that it tends to be in these little pieces under the hood as opposed to sort of buying a whole, a whole, a whole package, per, for example. The big shift that I saw was an enormous number of open source advocates who, who basically sort of jumped ship when they could save a half million or a million dollars by doing Google Apps for Ed. Yeah. And and sort of the wholesale abandonment of a lot of open of, of locally installed open source software. Well, and I think you know I think that this is actually we talked a little bit about this of my trends posts about the subject of open in general, and I think that um, there's there's a lot of folks that use open as an adjective, and I I think Google is one of them. I think Google does do some great work. And it's it's open, you know. It does open up a lot of its code, but not all of its code. And I think Google likes to act as though it's open, and it's not always the case. Okay, there's so much here: gaming, <laughs> um, then in the higher ed accreditation, and what will count your MITx story, peer to peer again, community, uh, robot grader, and adaptive learning. Yeah. What is a robot grader? Well, robot, a robot grader is actually who handled the 100,000-some-odd students that took the Stanford Online Artificial Intelligence class. And, that, of course, that's hardly surprising, considering that would be the perfect sort of assignment for an AI class. Um, and I think that this is something that um, artificial intelligence folks, machine learning folks, are very much interested in. Uh, the adaptive learning people are all interested in developing tools that can assess and make decisions and learn, these programs can learn themselves. Um, and I, I think that we will see, I mean, and this is actually, I think MITx will also be using a robot grader. Um, and I think we'll see, we'll see a lot more of this. One of the slides I love to give in my presentations is a picture of the Dick Tracy watch and the Star Trek communicator, because I think that you know, oftentimes we dream of things in science fiction that end up becoming our reality, in, in part because we dream them and, and we sort of move toward those dreams. And I got to thinking about our vision of education in science fiction, mm -hmm. and it seems to me it's either you plug into a machine and it dumps all of this data into your brain, or which, intriguing... Which someone proved this week. Oh, oh what's that? <laughs> that was actually someone did some research at Boston University, and they they actually were able to get a response like that. That if with the, with visual stimuli stimulation, they were actually able to to perhaps make some move forward with 
being able to see things and having it dump into our brain. Like Unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go well, no, no, no. So, so <laughs> fascinating. The other intriguing vision we have of education is that in the future, it's actually highly personal. And I realized that, you know, I have a lot of images in my mind from science fiction movies where it's a very Socratic environment. And so that's sort of inherent in our vision of the future are these very different and dual images of education. One sort of highly sort of robot data dump oriented and the other kind of in, uh, back to highly personal. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that I think um, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the, some of these adaptive technologies too, which are all again, based on, on algorithms. And I think that they all, many of them right now, at least are very predicated on sort of the, the knowledge that there's a set amount of knowledge that students should know and that the, a robot grader or an adaptive system can deliver and assess only within that, uh, that sort of limited amount of knowledge, which is a very different way of thinking about. This really doesn't include sort of curiosity or discovery or, or, or anything outside, outside sort of like that set, that core set of questions. Um, and so even though a lot of these tools are talked about in terms of personalized learning, um, you'll see that on all of the adaptive, you know, the adaptive software sites, I'll say, the future of personalized learning. But it's really only personalized in terms of whether you get the questions in order of one, two, three, or whether you get three, two, one. Fascinating. Okay, so let's shift to your... Um as of yet unpublished, but by the time this comes out, it will be published, uh, Roundup. So, um, happy 10th anniversary, No Child Left Behind. <laughs> happy, happy, joy, joy. <laughs> I, I love your style. Yeah, I mean, it has been 10 years since No Child Left Behind was passed. Um, and although I think the, 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 the bill is up for reauthorization, um, I think we can certainly see a shift in the last 10 years as a result of those sorts of policies. And I'm sure everyone listening will agree that we are such a happier, more joyful education system. Thank you, No Child Left Behind. <laughs> Tell me about the, uh, the the troubles of the Akash tablet. Well, this, you know, you and I talked about this. You asked, I remember when it first came out, you said, is this vaporware? And I said, no, it looks like they actually have a tablet. Um, and so this is, the, this is sort of the much bandied $35 tablet um, that the Indian government, or it's a Canadian company that's building it, but that the Indian government has sort of subsidized. And no surprise when a $35 tablet went on sale, millions of people ordered one. And um, needless to say, they didn't make millions. And from what it sounds like, some of the first, sort of the first ones that are getting into people's hands are lousy, as in the battery lasts an hour, um, the touch screen doesn't work. Uh, so there is a tablet, but I guess, you know, it's cheap. You know, if if Amazon is selling a tablet for one ninety nine that we think they're losing money on, mm -hmm. and it's getting complaints, right? Just seems really hard to imagine this 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 being uh, possible. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, without I think without sort of even more substantial you know subsidies from the government, um, you know, although you know, I think we are you know we are seeing some pieces that's you know like the Raspberry Pi that some pieces. Some of the building blocks in this hardware are getting a lot cheaper, but I'm just not sure that. I mean, again, this you know the iPad has set the bar so high. Um, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to get that that same sort of experience or even close to experience, even an adequate um, tablet experience from a $35 device. Not now, not yet. So imagining my 13-year-old daughter right now, I'm imagining my 13-year-old daughter right now demanding a subscription to um, EasyBib to, uh, to do her bibliographies. And it actually feels very real and that I probably would pay. EasyBib is, I mean, I, you know, I would heartily endorse this tool. If you, if you need to, if you have a job or you're in school and you need to make a bibliography, which is still one of the most incredibly challenging 
um, and time, you know, time-consuming processes. Um, I, I just can't say enough good things about EasyBib, which is it's it's such an ingenious tool. You snap a photo with your iPhone or now Android, and it fills in all of the bibliographic uh, details from the ISBN, right? Author, publication date, publication place. Puts it in the beautiful MLA format, and presto, there you go. Interesting. And you pay for the okay. subscription if you don't use MLA. So. Oh, yeah. uh, I loved it. <laughs> okay, uh, Google Passwords. Right? I wasn't quite sure where you were going with this, but are you now doing the two-stage password with Google? Uh, the, the Chrome OS does not actually have two-stage authentication. The Chrome OS, because, I mean, again, this is, so this is the operating system that runs the Chromebook. Remember, this is one of the great promises is that it's, you're supposed to turn on, you're supposed to log in in eight seconds or less to make it incredibly easy to distribute these and use them in the classroom. Um, and so January 1st, I went through my sort of regularly scheduled password update and I changed my Google password, which I definitely do use the two-step verification. And I went to log into my Chromebook and I couldn't log in. And I thought, what the heck's going on? And I, you know, I was trying to do all this troubleshooting and then I tried my old password, and my old password still worked. Um, and so there, the, the, the Chromebooks don't actually update your password right away. They're not actually connected to, to your Google account yeah, password. Which isn't, it's not a huge security leak. It's not sort of like the end of the world, but it is something, it's certainly something to be aware of too if you're a teacher using Chromebooks and someone changes their Google password and they can't get their Chromebook to, to open, that's why. Hey, and here's the story that I missed. I yes. just missed it <laughs> on the neuroscientists. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay, so um, uh, knowing that we <laughs> continue to stretch <laughs> our listenership's patience with the timing, uh, anything else in the, in the roundup you would want to draw attention to? Um. Let me look through here. I don't think so. I think we covered. I think we covered all of them. How funny. Okay. Again, uh, 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 a fascinating week of news and information from you. I'm hoping that you aren't feeling as discouraged as you felt at the beginning of the week. No. And that you're able to process through that and stay positive and engaged. Yes, actually, this is, it's been one of those funny weeks that I think it put me, I had sort of that dark rain cloud over my head, but um, I think, you know, moving on. And act was always, uh, I think I was on a Inside Higher Ed had me, or no, Higher Ed Live had me as a guest on their uh, show yesterday. And having talked to Mark Sermon this morning, uh, talking to you today, is sort of onward and upward, so... Good for you, Audrey. <laughs> Thank you so much for all that you do. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Bye now. Bye. Company, and it was—I um, was surprised.